God back. And so the Bible tells us that we love God because he first loved us. He sent his son Jesus to die for us. He sent Jesus to die for us on the cross. Here we go. Worship is an act of love. He loved us while we were yet sinners. While we still didn't know him at all, he loved us. And so our worship is a response back to him. It's a response of love. And so many of the songs that we sing, you'll hear, uh, you know, a lot of love back to God, a lot about how God loves us, a lot about how we love God. And there's a very common complaint among certain streams of Christianity, among certain theologians, that uh, worship is too, worship sometimes, some of these worship songs are too much like love songs. All right, have you heard this? Anyways, it's a common, it's a, it's a common uh, complaint. And I, I understand where they're coming from, right? I, I get it. You know, and sometimes, I'll be honest with you, sometimes some of our worship songs do lack context, right? We sing about love, 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 but who, who's loving? And so we love God and God loves us. And so if we're singing about either one of those things, that's great. And that's worship. If we leave out the fact that we're loving God or that God's loving us, then it could be you know, you could turn on the, uh, the radio and hear a love song that has nothing to do with, with God. And so we need context. And so sometimes, yes, I agree, there is a, there is a context missing. But what, what we can't overlook is that God is a lover. God's been a lover from the beginning. God's been a lover since the garden, since before the garden, since it all started. God, God is love. God Everything God does is in love. Everything he moves in is love. He's a lover. He, why did he, why did, he came to walk in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve because he loved them and he just wanted to be with them. God's a lover. And it never changed. It's never changed. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. It's all, it's all about love. It's always been about love. It'll always be about love. And so we need to embrace the fact that God's a lover. When we have this revelation and understanding that God loves us, our response is that we then love him. We love him back and we get to love him back. That's, what, that's, that's just our privilege to be able to love him back. Worship is one of those ways that we love him, whether it's in singing, lifting our hands, any, any of the things that we do. And so I want to share this quote with you. It's from Bob Coughlin, Worship Matters. And it says, he says this, he says, while, in, while it is simplistic to say that worship is love, which it is, okay, worship is a form of love, worship is an expression of love, while it's simplistic to say that worship is love, it's a fact that what we love most will determine what we genuinely worship. What we love most will determine what we genuinely worship. Listen, God made us. He made us as lovers. You, he's, we, he's made us to love, and this is why so many of us enjoy. You guys are quiet today. I'm talking about love, and everybody's like, oh, he's talking about love. Come on, I wore red. It's Valentine's Day. Chill. All right, let's take a breath. All right, where was I? Love, talking about love. While it is a fact that worship is love, it, it is a fact that what we love most will determine what we genuinely worship. We are made for worship. 
God created us as lovers. God created us to worship. God created us to love, and God created us to worship. We were made, we were designed, everything in our being is made for worship. I mean, we're made for other things too, but worship is one of the primary functions of us. And so the reality is that if we do not worship God, we will worship something else. We are designed for worship. We're created for it. This, this spirit, soul, and body, it's all connected so that I can worship. And if I worship God, that's, what my, that's, that's the purpose. But if I don't worship God, then I will worship something else. This is why when God wrote the Ten Commandments, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. No idols. Why? Why? Because he knew that if we didn't put him first, we put somebody else, something else in its place. Go back to the, go back to the, the story of, of Moses and the Israelites. Moses goes, Mo, here's, we read the story. We read the portion of the story. Thick cloud on the mountain, right? The mountain's on fire because the presence of God is there. Thick smoke descending from the mountain, lightnings and thunderings and flashings the sound of the trumpet, and Moses is like, yeah, come on, let's go. And he's running into the, he's running into the smoke and the flames, and the Israelites are like, no, no, you go. I'm going this way. You go. I'm going this way. And so what happens? Moses goes into the cloud. He goes up on the mountain. God gives him the Ten Commandments. He starts giving him all of the laws. He starts saying, listen, this and that. The tabernacle should be like this. The, the garments that the priests wear should be like that. You should make this. You should make that. And God's talking to Moses. And it's a really long time, 40 days. And what happens? The, people, the Israelites who ran away from the presence of God, they said, hey, they said to Aaron, they said, hey, we have no idea what happened to this Moses character. You make us another God and, and we'll worship him. And we'll, go back to, and we'll go back to Egypt. It didn't even take 40 days. It didn't even take 40 days, guys. Who, who, what are we worshiping? What do we, what you love the most will determine what you genuinely worship. This is the book, Worship Matters. I'm going to read a couple excerpts from here today. Uh, we read one. Jesus. Jesus. God wants us to love him more than anything, more than our instruments, more than the songs, more than, more than anything. God first. We're going to look at this in, again in a minute. That doesn't mean that we can't love anything else. It just means that he comes first. He comes first. Look at this. Here, uh, this is from uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Alternate centers. These are other things that people often worship. He refers to it as alternate centers, and he says that we should be principle-centered. Really, we should be God-centered, right? And so I would, all, I would amend that in the book, that one little bit. But these are alternate centers that people have, spouse-centered, family-centered, money-centered, work-centered, possession-centered, pleasure-centered, friend-centered, enemy-centered, church-centered, self-centered. These are all different centers that we can have in our life. These are all things that we can worship. We can worship ourselves. We could worship our spouse. Today's Valentine's Day, right? What are we doing for our spouse today? We could worship our spouse. We could worship our family. We could worship our kids. We could worship 
extended family. We could worship money. We could worship our job, our career. These are all things that people often and regularly worship. We could worship our possessions. We could worship our house. We could worship our car. We could worship pleasure, sin. We could worship our friends. We could worship our enemies. How would that work? We worship the idea of our enemies becoming defeated, right? We worship this war that we are at with our enemies. We could worship the church. I don't think there's any greater sin. I don't know if there's a greater sin than that. Don't ever worship the church. We're not made to worship the church. We're, the church is a body of believers. We could worship self. We already covered that one. All of these are good things, and we should have all of these things in our life, but we should never get them to a point of worship. I should love my spouse, but I can't love my spouse more than I love God. I should love my children, but I can't love my children more than I love God. Because if I do, then I do them a disservice. See, because what happens is if I love my son to a point that I love him more than God, then I'm willing to go against what God says for my son. I'll break the law of God for my son. But if I love God the most first, and the, the law of God is put there to protect my son. And so if I don't enforce, I, my children are older now. If I don't encourage my son at this point to follow the law of God, then I hurt him. And so loving God first is loving others the best. When we love God first and when we love God the most, we love we love others the best. It positions us to best love. And so when I love God the, the first, when I love God first and I love God the most, it positions me best to love my wife the best that I can. Because what happens is if I don't love God first, then if I put my spouse into that place, suddenly things become okay that God said weren't okay and God told us that they weren't okay because they knew that those things that we would make okay are actually harmful. Follow me? He wants us to love him the most. And so, so many times we love other things the most. And so how do I know what I love the most? And so there's a couple questions here that he has in the book, and I want to read them to you. How do I know what I love the most? By looking at my life outside of a Sunday morning. Okay, so here's some questions. What do you love the most? And so as I read through these questions, answer them for yourself. What do I enjoy the most? What's the number one thing that I enjoy the most? What do I spend the most time doing? Where does, where does my mind drift to when I don't have anything to do? When you have nothing to do, what do you find yourself thinking about? Where does your mind drift to? What am I passionate about? What do I spend my money on? That's good. They used to say, show me your checkbook and I'll show you what you love. 
Nobody carries a checkbook anymore. What makes me angry when I don't get it? Food, right? Number one answer, food. And there's a lot of answers there. What do I feel depressed without? What do I fear losing the most? These are good questions. What is it that you fear losing the most? These are good questions. And the point of them is just to reveal your heart so that we know what it is that we're, we struggle with. See, because if we understand what it is we struggle with and we understand what it is that we put before God, then we better prepare ourselves to, to arm ourselves against the struggle. See, I often, when I, when I have a realization of that I'm that I have something that I struggle with, I'll tell my wife or I'll tell Pastor Tom, my spiritual mentor, I'll tell these people and they help to hold me accountable. A lot more often I'll just tell my wife because I'm around her all the time and she watches my behavior. And so I say, hey, listen, this is, this is an issue for me. And so we live together, we work together, we're always together, we're rarely apart. And so she sees my life. And so when I say, hey, listen, this is an issue for me, and then I pull out whatever it is that, you know, I said is that issue, she, she can say, hey, how you doing? <laughs> it's good. Matthew twenty two thirty six. I'm not going to talk to you guys for too long today. Matthew 36, I want to get back into worshiping God. Jesus said to him, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered and said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And Deuteronomy adds, with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandments. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws hang all of the law and all of the, the prophets. Love God, love your neighbor. It can't be more simple it's still difficult. Love God. Love God. Love God. Just love God. If we could just do one thing, if we could just do that one thing, Mary came and she took that oil, that, that expensive spike nerd oil, and she poured it out on Jesus' feet. And it was this dedication of love worth a year's wages, and she poured it on his feet. She did one thing well. Mary, Martha invites Jesus in and, and Mary sits at the feet of Jesus. One thing is needed. Mary's chosen this good part and it will not be taken away from her. It will not be taken away from her. She's sitting there loving God. She's sitting there just listening to the words of Jesus. She's sitting there at his feet. It will not be taken from her. If we can just get this one point right, to love God well, everything else falls into line. When we love God right, we, lo we love our wives right. When we love God right, we love our children right. When we love God right, we love our family right. When we love God right, we love our enemies right. When we love God right, we take care of our possessions the right way. When we love God right, we take care of our money the right way. When we love God right, we do our work the right way. There's a right way and there's a wrong way to do work. And if we love God 
and we follow his word because if we love God, we follow his commands. And when we follow his commands, we'll do all things well. Our relationships will be right. Our self will be right. And so seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added unto you. It's not that we seek the kingdom of God to get things. It's that we seek the kingdom of God and as we're seeking the kingdom, God gives us everything we need. As we love God, he just opens our heart. And so we can't be afraid of this loving God and entering into this love relationship with God. I know, I know, <laughs> I know for some men, it's, it's kind of like loving God. And we kind of get this thing like, you know, um, there, there was a book that we all read. It was um, Mike Bickle's book, um, After God's Own Heart. And I know certain guys had said to me, I don't like the way he words certain things. He, he talks, you know, in these love tones, and I'm not okay with it. And so I know that for a guy, talking about love a lot can be tough. But guys, it's what we're designed for, we're, we're made for. And so whether we don't love because we've been hurt or we don't understand it isn't an, isn't an excuse. God wants us to love, and he wants us to be lovers, God gave us one command as husbands, well, there's several commands, but one of the commands as husbands is to love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for it. And so we love our wives in a sacrificial way. I hope you're doing something for your wife today on Valentine's Day. I want to read 2 Samuel chapter 6. Not going to read the whole thing. Might read most of it. I have a shirt, and I thought about wearing it today, and it says, uh, but it's on the back, and I would have to take my jacket off. I was like, ah. On the back, it says, real men dance real hard. <laughs> Second Samuel chapter 6, I believe, verse 14. Yep. And so I want to read a portion of text today, but I want to set the stage for what we're reading. David was a worshiper of God. David wrote a lot of the Psalms. Not all, but a lot of them. And so David is this warrior who God anoints as king. And for 20 years, David runs for his life as an anoint, as, anointed as king. And you guys know this story. At least I hope you do. And he's running for his life for 20 years. He's been anointed king, but he hasn't been made king, Right? And so for 20 years, he runs for his life. He's in the lowest place in his life, and the previous king dies. And he prays and asks God, do I go up to be king now? Or do I go up to Jerusalem now? Or do I go up to Israel now? Yes, where do I go up? Go up to Hebron. And he makes David king over a small portion. And so for seven years, this was within the 20, for seven years, David's king over just a small portion. And then uh, another one of Saul's sons reigns for seven years, and then David becomes king over the entire nation, right? And so when David becomes king over the nation, he does several things that are very interesting. He does several things that I would never have thought to do as the ruler of a nation. The first thing he does, the very first thing he does, if we go back, uh, it says in verse 5, he reigns over he reigns, over verse, he reigns over all of Israel, right? So David becomes king over all of Israel. And then in verse 
6, it says the conquest of Jerusalem. David goes and he takes this new city. The city was called Jebus to this time. And David goes in and he takes this new city and it's actually in, it's within the tribe of Benjamin. And that's important because Benjamin's the smallest tribe within the nation of Israel. And so David picks the most obscure tribe out of the nation of Israel, 12 tribes, and he picks this city, Jebus, because it was a well-fortified city and it had a water source within the walls. He knew what he was doing. And he makes this city, Jebus, his new capital. He calls it Jerusalem. Fantastic, wonderful. This is military strategy at its finest. And it's actually strategy for the nation because whereas before they had a, a capital here or a capital there, now they've got a new capital. Before it was like, you know, there could be conflict. Now there's no conflict. We've actually taken the, the least tribe and we've made them the, the most important. Cool. Then he goes and he fights against the Philistines for a minute. He goes down and they have a battle and they, he, obliter, he obliterates them, right? He, he basically goes in and he's just letting them know, hey, listen, I'm the king and we're not going to deal with this anymore. Takes him out. One quick battle, not, not long war. Then he does something that no king had ever done before. I don't know. Most kings won't do it today. And he, he, brings, he, he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, to the capital city. And so here's this earthly king, and he says, listen, if we're going to rule, and we're going to do this right, and we're going to do this well, I want the Ark of God here. I want it here. And so it says that they went out, and they started to, they found the ark. They knew where it was. They went and they found it. They got it. And they started to move it. And they did it wrong. And David's friend Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark because the, the cart had tipped. He reaches out to steady, steady the ark so it doesn't fall and hit the ground. And God strikes him dead because they did it wrong. And so this is where worshipers must worship in spirit and truth, John 4 tells us. We have to worship God the way that he has set parameters to worship. Not everything's okay. Lifting hands is good. Dancing's good. This is good. That's good. But we can get off. And so we always have to come back to the word. What did God say? How does God want us to worship? And so we're into chapter 6. He brings the ark to, to Jerusalem. And so when Uzzah dies, he says, no, no, no. we're going to stop. And he takes the ark off the cart and he puts it in the house that's there, Obed-Edom's house. He puts it in Obed-Edom's house. And Months later, six months later, word comes back to David that God is blessing the house of Obed-Edom. Why? Because the ark's there, right? This is why David wanted it in Jerusalem. He understood. He knew. David knew things that we don't know. He, he, he moved in ways that we didn't move in, that we still don't move in. And so we, we in many ways want to try and pattern our life after his life. And so when he hears of the fact that Obed-Edom's house is being blessed. He knows that what God had spoken to him about bringing the ark to Jerusalem was right, and he needs to go back and do it. And so David goes back into the law, and he reads the law, and he sees where he made the error before. See, they had set the ark on a cart, and they pulled it, a new cart, and they pulled it with oxen. And so the, 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 the ark was never meant to be placed on a cart. It was meant to be carried by men. There's poles that went through it and they were to lift it and hold it on their shoulders and carry it as they walked, no matter how far they had to go. There was no time where this thing was supposed to rest on a, on a car. 
And so they go and they do it right, and they're moving it into the, they're moving it into the city of Jerusalem. And David, David has this wonderful, and the whole reason why I'm telling you the story, the whole reason why I'm reading the scripture today is because David has this wonderful moment of worship. This wonderful moment of worship for us all to see. And as the ark is coming into the city of Jerusalem, David begins to worship God. And it says he worships him with all of his might. Chapter 6, we're going to pick up in verse 12. It says, Now I, it was told to King David, saying, uh, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all things belonging to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark from the house of God of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those who were bearing the ark had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fattened sheep. So picture, guys, right? The ark is this box. It's probably about six feet long. It's about three feet wide, three feet high. There's rings on it, and the poles go through, and men pick it up, right? Two or three in the front, two or three in the back on each side, and they pick it up, and they hold it on their shoulders, and they carry it. And they go, watch. They go, one, two, three, four, five, six. And before they take the seventh step, they have an offering. They worship God. And so why? Because six is the, six is the number of man, but seven is the number of covenant. Okay? And so before they could enter into covenant with God, there had to be a sacrifice. There had to be a blood sacrifice to cover the sin. And God, because God wants to enter into covenant, but there has to be, it has to be done right. And so today we have Jesus. Jesus is that sacrifice. Jesus Christ died for your sins and for mine. And so we're, we're ready to enter into covenant at any time we want because of the blood of Jesus. We simply call upon his name. It's so simple for us today. And we enter into this covenant, this covenant relationship. It says, and then, David, and then David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. It's a, a linen robe. And David and all of the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, who was David's wife, looked through the window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord. Come on. Leaping and whirling. Come on. Yeah, this is worship. Oh, man. She saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And so they brought the... <laughs> And they, so they brought the ark of the Lord and they set it in the place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he distributed among the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men to everyone, a loaf of bread and a piece of meat and a cake of raisins. So all of the people departed, everyone to his own house. Now, if we're not careful, we'll miss something very important here. The Ark of God wasn't supposed to be done with what they did. David took the Ark of the Covenant and he put it in the middle of a tent. He says, it says the tabernacle that David erected for it. I'm going to 
I want to read uh, a portion from 1 Chronicles chapter 16. First Chronicles 16, chapter 1. So they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected it, erected for it. Then they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So there was, a, there was an offering. This is the same story out of a different book. There was the offering that they, there was the sacrifice that they had at the beginning, and now here's this offering that they have at the end. And when David had finished the offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. He distributed to everyone, man and woman, a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. And then he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to commemorate, to thank, to praise the God of Israel. And then there's a list of who was there and who used which instrument. Okay? Now here's the point that we want to make is that in the, up, until this, up until this moment of time, the ark of God sat in the Holy of Holies. And let's just pretend like, well, I don't want to use, that's a bad example. It's, let's say it's sitting right here, right? And so it sat behind a veil in the tabernacle. And so one time a year, the high priest, after making sacrifices, would tie a rope around his leg. I told you guys this before, but it's worth telling again. Would tie a rope around his leg and then make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And then he would enter in behind the veil to minister to the Lord in front of the ark one time a year. Go into the presence of God one time a year. Why was the rope around his leg? Because if he didn't do something right or if there was secret sin in his life, he dropped dead in the presence of God. And the next priest didn't want to have to go in and get him, so they'd use the rope and they'd pull him out from under the curtain one time of the year. David says, no. David says, hey, we're going to do this different. We're going to take the ark of God and we're going to set it right in the middle of the room. No veil. And we're going to have worshipers. We're going to have symbols, it says. Asaph was a chief next to him, Zechariah, then Jael, Shemamroth, Jehael, Messiah, Eliab, Benaiah, and Obed-Edom, Jaleel, with stringed instruments. So there's stringed instruments, there's guitars and harps. But Asaph made music with cymbals, and so there's cymbals. Benaniah, Janiah, the priests, regularly blew the trumpets before the ark of God. And so they've got this worship going on before the Lord all the time. And then it says that they, they regularly came in and made sacrifices. They made prayers. They made thanksgivings. They made their requests known to God. And so David says, okay, we're going to do this different. We're going to take the tabernacle. And I'm like, where did, where did David find this in the law? I've read the law. It's not in the law. It's not there. I've looked. I've, it's not there. If anybody finds it, let me know. It's not there. He puts it there, worship 24-7 before the Ark of the Covenant. He, he paid, four, is it 40,000, 4,000? I can't remember. It's a lot of people. 4,000 musicians to worship day and night and night and day before the Lord. This is the first thing that he does, guys, as king. He goes and sets up a new city. Smart. He shows his enemies that he's powerful and then he says, hey, listen, we're going to make prayer the most important thing. We're going to make worship the most important thing. And from this place, being in the presence of God, worshiping God, all of the kingdoms of the earth shook and fell before David. 
The kingdom was expanded under David, and he made the full conquest of what God had told the Israelites since Abraham of what he would have. Up until that time, they hadn't fully conquered the land. They conquered the land. The, the power that David walked in was so significant. It was so significant that the, re, that the reign of David and the expansion of the kingdom continued under Solomon, although the prayer and worship would change. See, under David, they had this place with the Ark of the Covenant. And it says that the daily sacrifice continued in another city. It continued in Hebron. And so there was this daily sacrifice for the sins of the people and all of this stuff. That happened in a different place. But here in Jerusalem, they did things differently. They worshiped before the Ark of God. It says in Psalm 51, it talks in Psalm 51, it says, uh, when, David, when David had sinned with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah, it says Nathan the prophet comes and he finds David out in his sin. And when David was found out in his sin, it says he went in before the presence of the Lord. Listen, I know the story of the priest with the rope around his leg. And David goes into the presence of the Lord. How? how, how? Because there's just this relationship. And, the, and David approaches it the right way. He approaches it out of love. And if you read Psalm 51, he's broken before the Lord. When he went in, he was broken before the Lord. He says, God... God, I just want to be a doorkeeper in your house. Don't cast me away from your presence. I don't care what I, if I have to clean the toilets, that's fine. They didn't have toilets back in that day. Doorkeeper was the lowest position. I just want to be a doorkeeper in your house. God, don't take me away. God, I was wrong. It's this place of unending worship. Derek Prince said something really interesting, and I'm going to bring this up again next week. He said, if you only have 10 minutes to pray, spend eight of them worshiping. It'll make the last two minutes of your prayer more effective than if you had spent the whole 10 minutes worshiping. <laughs> I hear something like this, and I'm like, is this even scriptural? Right? Because I hear these stories and these quotes by guys, and I'm like, is this even scriptural? What did Jesus say in, in, the, in the model prayer? Our Father. He begins with worship and he ends with worship. And so if Jesus told us that we should begin our prayer with worship and end our prayer with worship, who are we to determine anything other than that's the truth? Let every prayer we pray ever always begin with worship. And let every prayer we pray ever always end with worship. And so when, you, when we have, we, we didn't have it this month, we'll be begin, we're beginning uh, our new corporate prayer coming up the, the first of March, the first Thursday after the first Sunday in March, we'll be announcing that as we get closer. We always worship and we spend a good amount of time worshiping. Why? Because it helps us to get our hearts right before we start asking God for stuff. Worship changes you and it changes me. Worship is the sacrifice that we bring and it makes, worship makes us more pleasing to the Lord. It doesn't make us pure. Us repenting makes us pure. Us, the blood of Jesus makes us pure. But worship enters us into this right, this right state where God is in heaven. God is in heaven. I'm only on earth. God is worthy. God is holy. God is right. God is good. God is good. It just 
puts things in proper perspective for us. And so worship is an act of love. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to go back into a moment of worship here. And so as we worship, just pour out your love on God. He's worthy. Pour out your love on God. It's really what we were designed to do. Worship is an act of love, and we love God because He first loved us. God loved the world so much that He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, for you and for me, so that we could have relationship with God, so that we could have a right relationship with God. If you're here today and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to make that decision today. It's something that most of us in this room have done. We've made this decision to follow Christ. We are worshipers. And so if you're here today and what I've shared with you meant something to you, it stirred your heart, it touched you, I just want to invite you to pray and ask God into your heart and that you would make the decision to follow him all the days of your life. And so if you'll just pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I ask that you would forgive me of my sin, that you would come and live inside my heart, and that you would help me to live for you all of the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer, I want you to do uh, just one thing for me. Take your Engage card and on the back, check the box that says, Today I make the decision to follow Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. If that's you, check that box. If you're watching online with us, send me an email at info at redeeminglovechurch.org. Let me know that you made that decision. I'm going to send you, I want to send you some information that better explains the decision that you've made. And I want to, uh, that information will be sent to your address. So make sure your address is there on that email. If you're filling out the Engage card, just make sure your address is there and it's clear so that we can send that same information to you. Here's the, here's the most important first step if you did pray that prayer. Get involved in a church. If it's this church, great. If it's another church, that's great too. We just want you to follow Jesus with your whole heart. It's the most important thing. It's a decision that you'll never regret. Worshiping God is the greatest joy of your life that you'll ever enter into. When we worship God right, the presence of God comes in a fantastic way. So come on, let's stand to our feet. Let's worship God. Let's give him our glory. Let's give him some praise here as we leave today.